And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, March 3rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, from 9-11 to Hurricane Sandy, she's been at the forefront of FEMA responses. Plus, an old idea gets a fresh look. How about a nuclear-powered spaceship? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the expert commission tasked with overhaul ideas for DOD's 60-year-old budgeting system is still a year away from delivering its final report to Congress. But the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform, PPBE, has already gathered a huge amount of information. In its first progress report yesterday, the Commission said it's held 27 formal meetings, interviewed 280 people and organizations, and launched research studies on more than a dozen topics. For an update, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu talked with the panel's chair and vice chair, former DOD Comptroller Bob Hale and former DOD Acquisition Chief Ellen Lord. Our first meeting was about a a year ago, March of 2022. We have been on what I like to describe as a listening and learning tour uh, since then. And we've also uh, established a research agenda uh, aimed at uh, providing us information. We have two federally funded research and development centers working for us and some others doing uh, some assistance as well. Uh, So we learned a lot. uh, And I I think we know enough now uh, to believe that we are on track uh, to meeting the congressional deadlines for an interim report uh, this August and a final report next March. And those will make recommendations to improve the PPPE process. Ellen, you want to add to that? Yeah, thank you. Building on what Bob said, we have been very focused on engaging a variety of stakeholders to really look at how we more efficiently and effectively can field capability downrange to the warfighter. And we really think there's an opportunity here to work with the PPBE system to make sure we truly link strategy to budget and that we enable mechanisms and channels for communication between DOD and Congress. One of the things we've heard a lot about is the disparity in data that flows from DOD to Congress. Sometimes timeliness is not as effective as it could be. So I think we're target rich in terms of looking at communication channels and cadence and to make some recommendations on how to significantly improve that to allow Congress to be more responsive as well. Yeah, that, that what Ellen just said gets to something I was going to ask you both, which is, you know, it seems to me one of the first things you want to do is figure out whatever future budgeting system we have, it needs to do X. And, and it sounds like you figured out what X is, at least, which is that budget and strategy linkage. Is that about right? Yeah, and I, yeah, think, I think what we've been doing is trying to characterize the current state and look at the desired future state so that we can not only quickly field commercial technology, for instance, but the so we can do technology insertion in the year of execution in programs of record. 
You know, we're fortunate to have commissioners, uh, many of whom have uh, both congressional and DOD experience with this system, in fact, most of them. Um, so we have people that know uh, what both sides uh, need, both uh, DOD and Congress. But we have asked questions about uh, how those needs can best be met and, and in some cases where they need to change, as Ellen suggested. So, yeah, I think we are looking at, at requirements for PPBE, if you will, uh, as well as how we can best meet them. Yeah, to, to Bob's point on the expertise of the commission, I mean, these are all, and as are you, veterans, survivors of the PPBE process uh, over the years. Uh, I mean, these are all folks who, if, if they were not on the commission, they'd probably be testifying before the commission. Given that body of expertise that you already have, what have you learned that's been the most interesting? Bob, you said you, you have learned some things along the way already. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples, and uh, these do not uh, are not meant to suggest the commission is recommending sure. these, or even uh, that they are necessarily the highest priorities. What they are are the things we've heard a lot about. One of them is concerns uh, that the PPBE system may not be always be as flexible as it needs to be in meeting unexpected changes in program requirements. So, for example, a technology shift. Uh, that uh, requires a change in the in a development program. Um, Ellen mentioned another one that's important: the linking uh, uh, budgets to strategy. Another thing uh, that we have certainly uh, heard about. We've heard about uh, concerns about relations between DoD and Congress. Um, those are the kinds of issues that we've heard a good deal about, as well as a number of others. Uh, but I think hopefully it'll give you a flavor for the kinds of uh, things that the commission will be looking at. One of the groups that we have talked to is industry, everything from small venture-backed companies um, to mid-sized companies to the primes. And a theme that has come out is the difference between software acquisition and hardware acquisition. And particularly a concern about the fact that if you do software development in a contemporary coding fashion, you are doing development production and sustainment all at once. And there has been a concern expressed that the colors of money are not as flexible as they could be, that perhaps the BA-8 um, mechanism could be more widely used. Then on the congressional side, it doesn't appear that all the reports that have come up have all been read or disseminated to all the need them. And the software developers are frustrated that they want to work on national security issues. However, the lumpiness of the funding and the lack of understanding that it takes infrastructure to build software, just like it takes infrastructure to build hardware, is not well understood. So there's concern that these pauses in funding, therefore cash flow deficits for small companies, could lead more and more small companies to deselect from doing business with DOD. So some very important findings and learnings there that we want to make sure we continue to communicate and really look for solutions. This may be a weird question, but but have you heard from anyone who says, don't change anything, we like the current system? Are, are, there, are there any defenders out there that you've heard of? We've certainly heard from people who defend aspects of PVBE, and 
I don't believe I remember any interviewee who said absolutely don't make any changes uh, when all of them have suggested. But a number of our interviewees, including people who work with the system for a long time, note uh, that it does. It's a mechanism for bringing up um, uh, major issues and getting them before the senior leadership or the services uh, and departments and then OSD. It tries to bring analytic information to bear on resolving those issues, both in terms of cost analyses, but also assessments of effectiveness of the programs. And that was indeed the major innovation that McNamara made when he introduced PGE way back in 1961. And one more thing we've heard, the system is good, and, and this is true in my experience as well, at being sure relevant voices are heard. Uh, and that's important in a large, diverse organization, especially one like DOD that's going to have to turn around and defend their budget before Congress. So you do want uh, people to have a chance to speak their views. So we have definitely heard pluses uh, for the PVV system. But as I said, I don't think anybody has said, don't touch it at all. It seems to me that, that one of the biggest challenges y'all are going to have is, is figuring out how to write recommendations that are not just executable, but can actually drive some kind of long-term change. Because there's no there's no like section of Title 10 that's labeled PPBE that you can just draft mm-hmm. recommended amendments to, right? I mean, how are you starting to think about that problem? N- not only, you know, who to address your recommendations to exactly, but but how to write recommendations that that can actually change some things. I think we're actually think trying team. to give some actions that could be used as a subset of the recommendations so that it's not just a policy suggestion, but there's implementation guidance that could just be lifted and shifted. Uh, A big part of this also comes around training. We've talked a lot about training of the workforce and how not only to recommend something, but how to make sure it's sticky and actually becomes part of the DNA of DOD. And a lot of that is around culture and culture is built on what you do. So there's a large leadership call here to have leaders embrace it and have a shadow of the leader in terms of implementing this. Former DOD Acquisition Chief Ellen Lord and former Defense Department Comptroller Bob Hale speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, an old idea gets a fresh look, a nuclear-powered spaceship. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The idea of nuclear-powered spacecraft goes back decades, almost science fiction days. Now it might become a reality. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, and NASA are teaming up on a demonstration project. They want to see if a nuclear rocket engine could power flight to Mars. Joining me with the details, NASA Program Manager, Dr. Anthony Calamino. Dr. Calamino, good to have you with us. 
Good morning, Tom, and, and thank you for inviting me on. So we're talking about nuclear for propulsion and not nuclear to, like, keep the astronauts alive with electricity and to run the microwave oven inside there. So the Draco mission that we're partnering with DARPA on is actually a propulsion system. It is, is that, that really is all that it will do is provide thrust to the vehicle. And is this thrust that would take it out of Earth into space or would it kick in once the vehicle is in space? So uh, we would actually place the uh, vehicle itself, the, in, the nuclear thermal rocket, we would actually place it into orbit around Earth using chemical systems, traditional chemical systems. And then once it is in orbit, a safe orbit around Earth, thousands of kilometers away, that's when we would conduct the experiment, the nuclear part. Because the levels of thrust needed to maneuver in space are infinitesimal, right, compared to what it takes to get it up and out into space from Earth. It certainly is a small fraction. Once you're in space, you need a small fraction of the force that it took to actually get the the hardware and the, the mass into space to move around, yes. And before we get into some of the details in between for this craft to come back from Mars... I don't know what the gravitational pull on Mars is, but would this be able to get it out of Mars and back into reentry here? So I just want to be, make clear that the, the, the mission that we're talking about with Draco would just be a, a an in-space near-Earth demonstration. You know, it wouldn't be anything what we would call as an operational vehicle. It would just be a proof of demonstration of the technology itself. When we get to an operational vehicle, uh, something that we would want to use for Mars, uh, the nice thing about NTP is it provides us high thrust, you know, so we can generate, you know, up to uh, anywhere from 25,000 up to 75,000 pounds of thrust uh, from that engine. And that's the kinds of force that you would need to leave Earth, we call Earth departure, and get on to a trajectory that would that would give you the sufficient velocity or energy to get to Mars. And you've mentioned the Draco project with DARPA. That's Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations. Cislunar meaning what? Cislunar means the space between Earth and the moon is, is really the way that you could think of it. It extends a little bit beyond the moon, but uh, it is, is certainly the space that, that is around Earth and in the moon. And just in layman's terms, how would this rocket engine work? Because you think of nuclear power as generating heat, and then it, that heat heats up water to produce steam or something like that. How would this work? You've got a nuclear reactor. Then then what? It, it, it uses some of those very similar principles that you just spoke to. It's, it's, it actually is an incredibly simple system. It is the reactor, which is used as a heat or thermal energy source, so it heats up hydrogen propellant that flows through it. And then we use the heated uh, hydrogen propellant through an exhaust nozzle to move the vehicle forward. And uh, so the reactor is really the energy source for propulsion. And it would heat up hydrogen and shoot it out a nozzle. Yes, and push it out a nozzle. What are the chief difficulties of this? Is it simply that people worry what could happen with a nuclear source if something went wrong with it and then you'd have a bad problem. So, you know, we could talk about the safety of, of the nuclear aspects to the design. We actually are using uh, quite a bit of knowledge that's been gained with terrestrial systems on on how to manage fuel and how to manage the temperatures of those fuels and keep systems safe. And we're going to implement that in these systems as well. The real challenge for the NTP system is the reactor, but it's not the nuclear aspects of the reactor so much as it is the, the high temperatures that that reactor is going to operate at. 
So, you know, eventually NASA would want to have a reactor that can operate at, at 2,700 or 2,800 degrees Celsius. And so that puts a lot of strain and stress on the materials. And, and that becomes the big challenge is, is picking the right materials that work at, for that application and making sure that they survive the function. We're speaking with Dr. Anthony Calamino. He's a program manager and a materials and structures engineer at NASA headquarters. Is there lessons learned for this from, say, the Navy's experience in nuclear submarines? Lessons learned with, with you know, it's not just the, the Navy reactors. It's all of the reactors. But certainly the Navy has a lot of safety protocols and safety procedures in the way that they operate those nuclear reactors. And we do have associations and, and, and uh, subject matter experts that, that we've talked to and work with on that to make certain that we implement their practices where it makes sense and we utilize their lessons learned on base systems. Of course, they're surrounded by cold water that could be, I guess, pumped in to cool things off if need be. Not the case in cis-lunar space. Yeah, not the case in cislunar space, but uh, one nice thing about being in cislunar space is that you're outside of the biosphere of Earth. And again, these systems are going to be very safe. Uh, we have no reason to believe that, that there would be a problem. But the one nice thing about it is that the consequences of something should happen is very, very small for Earth itself. Right. And of course, you'll be testing it without anybody aboard. Right. The The first few instances of this... There will be autonomous vehicles that will be tested without, you know, any life form on, on board. And tell us about the programmatic aspects of this. What is DARPA bringing to it? What is NASA bringing to it? And when will we see something tried out? So NASA's responsibility is, is really on the key thing that, that we have the, you know, the strong technical interest in, which is the engine itself, right? The, the reactor design, the reactor operation, and all of the turbo machinery that needs to wrap around that to make it an integrated engine. So NASA will be taking responsibility to manage and, and fund that activity. That would really be the core of what we would want to use for some of our missions. DARPA will be taking the responsibility for the overall integrated vehicle that would demonstrate it. There's cryofluids that need to be designed and placed into that vehicle. Uh, actually, the mission CONOPS, the launch requirements to, to safely launch it from Earth, and those would be the responsibilities for DARPA on the mission. So it will go up. This engine will have a some kind of a simulated craft, not simulated, but a, but a model type of craft that it's attached to. And how will that whole thing get up into space in the first place? So the, the entire vehicle, space vehicle, will actually be assembled on Earth. It's, you know, relatively small by, you know, launch payload standards, relatively low mass system. Those those aren't really constraints in terms of what we're doing. So we would launch an integrated system that would be ready to be essentially turned on and, and operated. It would include all the crowd fluid tanks, all of the avionics, all the controls, including the engine on it to demonstrate. And this is something I'm thinking minivan size type of thing? Yeah, I think that's a fair uh, approximation of what we would consider to be the size of the system. And, of course, you'll be able to measure all of its activities and parameters by telemetrics. Will it come back or will it just sort of burn no. up? So, you know, on the first, we will we will have it fully instrumented and we will have a robust uh, palette of, of, of information will be generated from the test. It'll be recorded, obviously digitally recorded. It'll be transmitted back to Earth. We will be watching the operation of it in real time. When the demonstration mission is over, 
the system will be left in a near circular orbit thousands of kilometers away from Earth, and it will be safe there uh, orbiting the Earth for as long as it has or represents any radiation concern to, to Earth itself. It would, it would stay out there. And when is the planned launch of this thing? Right now, we believe that the launch will happen as early as calendar year 27. It's a very aggressive schedule that we're, we're looking to conduct this mission on, and so we're really quite anxious to get started. And will NASA be fabricating and crafting this engine itself, or do you use contractors that have knowledge of nuclear systems? So NASA will rely on an industry prime, uh, and actually uh, NASA will actually be using some of the the investments that DARPA has made up to this point to to get some of the industry engaged on this. But NASA and DARPA have both had engagements with industry over the past few years on this. So there's a good alignment between both communities. We're pretty well linked in terms of how we would look at that design to go and, and how we would build it. Right. So we won't see it overhead mixing in with all the mysterious balloons or anything in the next few months. This is years out yet. No, we'll, we'll be very clear about what it is that we're launching and what we're testing. Dr. Anthony Colomino is a program manager and a materials and structures engineer at NASA headquarters. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, now that the Office of Personnel Management has a performance director, what should she do? But first, from 9-11 to Hurricane Sandy, she's been at the forefront of FEMA responses. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. We continue now with this week's series of interviews with recent Presidential Rank Award winners. My next guest probably knows as much about disasters and federal responses to them as anyone. Her experience with the Federal Emergency Management Agency dates to debris management after 9-11. Now she's the Region 3 Administrator. Marianne Tierney joins me now. Ms. Tierney, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me today. And you have been in emergency management a long time and even before FEMA, correct? Yes, I have been in emergency management since 1999, where I started with the New York City Emergency Management. All right. And your first immersion, I guess, in federal response was in the moments after 9-11. I kind of consider that the pre-Katrina FEMA. And there's a different FEMA in some ways after Katrina. But let's talk about the FEMA of the 9-11 era. What happened and what did you do in relation to the debris afterwards? Yeah, well, I worked really closely with FEMA after 9-11 because I was one of the leads for the recovery operations that the city was undertaking. So there were a couple aspects of that. First, the debris operation, like you mentioned, moving debris from ground zero. I worked really closely with the Army Corps and with FEMA on that. And then also FEMA's reimbursement program, the public assistance program. I did a lot of work with our city agencies and FEMA on reimbursing the city for their costs associated with 9-11. It sounds like there was a financial management and accounting type of task, but also a physical task working with people with front-end loaders and dump trucks. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of emergency management is that it can involve both extensive field work, but also significant policy and desk work. 
Yeah. And so what's your educational background, experiential background that got you to where you could juggle both of those halves of the task? Well, I went to American University. I have an undergraduate degree in political science. And while I was at American, I participated in several internships, including one with the D.C. Emergency Management Agency and one with FEMA back when I was in college. And then from there, I, like I mentioned, worked at New York City Emergency Management. And while I was working full time, I went to NYU and received a graduate degree in public administration. All right. And just going back to that 9-11 time, then you saw this, the aftermath, anyhow, physically with your own two eyes? Yeah. New York City Emergency Management was located in Seven World Trade Center. And so on the day of 9-11, that's where I was in our emergency operations center. And what prompted you to leave the city government and join FEMA? Well, before I joined FEMA, I left New York City government for Philadelphia government. I was the emergency management director in Philadelphia, and I was there for about four years. And Philadelphia is where FEMA Region 3 is located. And when the regional administrator position for FEMA Region 3 opened up, somebody at FEMA called me and suggested that I apply. And that's how I got into working at FEMA through my personal emergency management network, alerting me to the position and then applying. And then I've been the regional administrator at FEMA now for over 12 years. Got it. So you had a rep, in other words. Well, emergency management is a really small community, especially at the more senior levels. And so it was nice for someone to alert me to the position. And of course, then I had to go through the whole SES process to apply and be qualified and approved. Sure. We're speaking with Marianne Tierney. She is Region 3 Administrator at FEMA and a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. And then it wasn't that long then till I guess Region 3 was the main response center for Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, so I started in Region 3 in 2010, and Region 3, is we covered the mid-Atlantic states, and there was, uh, at the beginning of Hurricane Sandy, significant concern that Region 3 would be uh, severely impacted by that storm. Uh, then, uh, fortunately for Region 3, unfortunately for FEMA Region 2 and New York and New Jersey, the storm shifted slightly north and really was devastating to the New York, New Jersey metro area. And many people in Region 3, including myself, responded to Hurricane Sandy to support New York, New Jersey, and FEMA. Region two. Right. Three and two are kind of, I mean, it's a boundary in administrative standpoint, but really it's kind of one region in some sense, geographically right. and everything yeah. else. The Northeast is a very compact region. In fact, I can see FEMA Region 2, New Jersey from my office in Center City, Philadelphia. Right. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want to ask you, what do you think are the big differences between working at the city administrative level and at the federal level? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, at the city level, every day you're directly interacting with citizens on a variety of daily challenges, water main breaks, building collapses, multi-alarm fires, special events. Uh, and so it's very tactical. And then coming to FEMA, you know, we do a lot of direct services to individuals and communities through our disaster relief and recovery programs, but we also have a very extensive policy arm. We regulate the floodplain. We are involved in offsite nuclear emergency planning. So the scope of what I do at the federal level is much broader and, and the scale is much broader. I would say that's the main difference in my observation. And what do you think it is that got the presidential rank award for you? 
That's a great question. I mean, it's really humbling to have been bestowed this award, which was obviously a remarkable accomplishment for any senior executive in the federal government. And for me, I look at it as really a reflection of my team. You know, no leader does these things alone, and it really takes a whole team to lift you up, to lift the whole organization up. So I really credit the work of the FEMA Region 3 team for my success in being recognized. And I think our collective success over the past 12 plus years that I've been the regional administrator, that this is just a reflection of the team. You know, you don't you don't do anything like this alone. And it seems like FEMA has done a steady job of improving relationships between the federal entities and the local emergency management entities. I mean, I think Katrina, again, you know, down in New Orleans was a pressure test for that relationship and for how response should work. Does that seem to have been a turning point in that management aspect of the intergovernmental relationship, do you think? To be direct, even when I was working in New York City before Katrina, I had very excellent relationships with our FEMA regional office and the individuals from FEMA headquarters. You know, every organization has watershed moments, right? Has moments that change the trajectory and the dynamic of that organization. And certainly Hurricane Katrina was one of those events for FEMA and FEMA through congressional action and through organizational changes made substantial adjustments to how they operate and their policies post Katrina. And I think that's been reflected as the agency is much more operationally focused, uh, leans forward. Congress gave FEMA immense authority post Katrina to pre-position resources and people so that they were not going to be late to need. And I think we know we continue that evolution through a variety of events, whether it was the Hurricane Sandy Recovery Improvement Act, or during COVID and now post-COVID, FEMA has made substantial adjustments to its operations. And part of the, I think, the ethos of emergency management is continuous learning and improvement. And I think FEMA has shown that over the years through many of its large events. And do the regional administrators get together either virtually or in person periodically? And when you do, what do you talk about? Yes, we are connected almost daily. I talk to my regional counterparts. Uh, In fact, I was just this morning speaking to another regional administrator about an issue of common interest where we could partner. So we do get together regularly. We do calls as a group on a regular basis because, again, we're all over the country. And then we convene at least quarterly for in-person meetings. And just this past week, I was meeting with some of our regional administrators and our field leadership where we were talking about areas of common interest in providing disaster operations to communities and survivors of post-presidential declarations. Sure. And what about relationships with private industry? Because one of the things that we've learned in recent disasters, you know, in the last couple of decades, is that if you want certain things delivered, you know, often companies have the logistics and the supplies there to a greater extent than the government could ever hope to. Yeah, that's a great question. I think you know, what I would kind of start with is that emergency management is a team sport, and there are a lot of different partners that contribute to the success of responding to an emergency and then eventually recovering from it. So, you know, government is one part of that solution. It's not the only member on the team. The private sector is obviously very critical. Most critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector. So getting a community back online and stabilized, having the private sector partnership is really critical to that. Supply chain, And like you mentioned, inventory, most organizations do just-in-time inventory even today. And so ensuring that the private sector has the necessary levers to ensure that the supply chain can remain open and functional is really critical. The nonprofit sector, right, so which is not 
private sector for profit, but the nonprofit sector, non-governmental organizations are also really critical to being prepared and responding and recovering. You think about the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and countless other nonprofit NGO organizations that contribute to helping people after disasters. And then, frankly, the American public is really critical in responding to and recovering from disasters. You know, normally, you know, in most disasters, it starts with your neighbors. It's people helping each other. Neighbors are the, you know, the first responders even before 911 arrives. And final question, do your friends, family, and neighbors ask you what they should stock up in their basements just in case? My neighbors usually take cues from if I'm tying down our porch furniture, whether they should uh, they should be getting ready or not. So yeah, no, we definitely are take a signal to the rest of the block in our neighborhood, and certainly I get a lot of questions about what I have in my go bag. Yeah, sometimes I wish I lived next door to a FEMA regional administrator. Marianne Tierney is a Region 3 administrator at FEMA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. You have a great day. And she's also a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, now that the Office of Personnel Management has a performance director, what should she do? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The White House recently appointed Lauren DeJong-Shulman as Associate Director for Performance and Personnel Management at the Office of Management and Budget. My next guest has a couple of ideas for what Ms. Shulman should set as her personal goals. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. He joins me now in studio. I guess this is a pretty important position to begin with, Director of Performance and Personnel Management. It kind of implies the connection between the people and the program performance. It does. So she's responsible for actually implementing President Biden's management agenda. She's responsible for ensuring that the goals that are identified by the agencies across the government that are then recorded on the website performance.gov are actually implemented. So it's a huge job, very complex job. And President Biden made it even more complicated when he has declared that issues that go across departments, for example, like veterans' mental health, be coordinated by DOD and VA and HHS rather than each creating independent goals. So that collaboration adds another level of complexity to her very, very important, difficult job. And what I'm suggesting is that she had a performance goal for herself, which would be to increase the number of hits from the general public on performance.gov. The public should be accessing, in my view, performance.gov on a regular basis because the website itself on the homepage says it, quote, attracts what the U.S. federal government is doing about issues that matter to you, close quote. So if that's the case, more members of the general public ought access performance.gov. Ms. Shulman comes at an interesting time because it's past the halfway point of the administration. It's a good year and a half or so since the president's management agenda was even issued. And it talks about elevating the federal workforce and empowering it in greater detail, in greater degree. And it talks about better customer experience put out there. And, of course, you need the right people to put out the best customer experience. The question is, it's late. 
and she's got some ground to pick up here. She does have some ground to pick up. And in terms of this access to the public, I was thinking this morning, actually, about if I were a taxpayer and I was trying to decide whether I would file my own taxes and call an IRS representative or would I do TurboTax. And so I went on performance.gov and I put in IRS level of service and I got 17 responses, none of which went to IRS level of service. Then I went to Department of Treasury, started scrolling, 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 found level of service, but I only found level of service for fiscal year 21. The plan was 35%, which means 35% of the telephone calls would be answered. The achievement was 18.5%, but nothing for fiscal year 22, nothing for fiscal year 23. So as a taxpayer interested in the performance of the IRS, I was unable to get the information that I needed and that mattered to me. So I'm suggesting that this website be more interesting more available to answer taxpayer questions. Well, yeah, but how do they find out what taxpayers really want to know? I mean, there's 360 million citizens in the United States. Each one has a slightly different question on what he or she would like to get from the government. And so I think what you say implies a need to maybe do some outreach. Well, of course, you have to do outreach, but it's really the basic information is there about performance. Make that information accessible. Make it searchable. Make it accessible. Encourage the public to apply. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if this were to occur, maybe, just maybe, people would talk to their members of Congress, talk to their senators, because the fact is members of Congress focus not on public policy implementation or whether or not last year's promises were effectively and efficiently implemented. Rather, they focus on new promises for the future. It's easy to promise for the future because it's the future. It's much more difficult to hold yourself accountable for the promises in the past, and most members of Congress don't do it. But if this performance.gov were actually a tool for the public, maybe they would. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. And I think part of the problem is that the website has a kind of a propaganda look to it in the front end. And this is something every administration does. The late Mike Causey used to complain about that, that everything the government puts out extols the virtues of the administration, which everyone happens to be. Thanks to the president's genius and wisdom, we are able to, you know, buy 200 electric cars or something like that. And maybe that's what turns off people. Yes, we know people support the administration that's in power at the given time, Obama, Trump, Bush, Biden, whatever. But it doesn't have an objective feel necessarily what it is, the information that the government puts out. And I'm not sure Ms. Schulman can do anything about that. But do you think that's an issue? It might be an issue, but that issue would go away, Tom, I think, if I could go to the search engine on the front page and say level of service because it's part of their performance plan, but it hasn't been updated and it's not accessible. If level of service were accessible, then I'd know as a taxpayer, should I make the call to the IRS or should I pay TurboTax? Right. And the other thing they could do, I think, too, is, as you say, what is it that most concerns the most people? 
paying taxes. That should be like permanently on the front page of performance.gov. And then there's 9 million veterans. I mean, tailor it to what's really going on and not the listing of, I don't know. Well, I don't think performance.gov could be a website that answered everybody's questions about anything VA or anything IRS, but they could answer questions related to the performance plan that's already buried in the website. So I'm not asking any more information be placed on the website, only that which is there be easily accessible. All right. So have you written this to Ms. Schulman yet? Have you gotten an answer? I have not. Well, hopefully she's listening. If not, we'll send her the link. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. As always, thanks for your thoughts. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you as usual. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Enroll in the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Biden administration is finally out with its highly anticipated national cyber strategy. The document, released yesterday, outlines a shift to what it calls a more defensible digital ecosystem. It puts more responsibility on technology manufacturers to build secure products. For more, here's Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, what are the big themes in this Biden cyber strategy? Yeah, well, if the previous strategy from the Trump administration in 2018 was all about offense and defending forward, this is all about defense and increasing the baseline levels of security across technologies. Uh, Biden in the opening forward talks about how digital technologies touch every aspect of modern life, especially after COVID. And folks need to be able to trust the underlying digital ecosystem is, quote, safe, reliable and secure. So the strategy includes five major pillars, as strategies do. Uh, One is defend critical infrastructure. Second, disrupt and dismantle threat actors. That's kind of that offensive piece carrying forward the Trump administration's defend forward piece. Third, shape market forces to drive security and resilience. Fourth, invest in a resilient future. And fifth, forge international partnerships. So there's a lot of ground covered in these strategies, but one of the big themes is really realigning more responsibility to big tech companies. Kemba Walden, the acting national cyber director, briefed reporters and talked about that a little bit. It will rebalance the responsibility for managing cyber risk onto those who are most able to bear it. Today, across the public and private sectors, we tend to devolve responsibility for cyber risk downwards. We ask individuals, small businesses, and local governments to shoulder a significant burden for defending us all. This isn't just unfair, it's ineffective. The biggest, most capable, and best positioned actors in our digital ecosystem can and should shoulder a greater share of the burden for managing cyber risk and keeping us all safe. Yeah, and some of them want to charge $12 a month for the privilege. So how does this plan envision rebalancing responsibility for cyber risks and not charging people $12 a month? Right. Well, you know, the big thing here is shifting liability for insecure products and services to software vendors. The White House plans on working with Congress and the private sector to develop software liability legislation that would prevent manufacturers and software publishers from fully disclaiming liability by contract um, and also establishing higher standards of care for software in 
specific high-risk scenarios. This is something that Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly has already been priming the pump on in several speeches since the start of the new year. She's talked about increasing or baking in security by design. So these big technology companies, they don't call them out by name, obviously, in the strategy, but they want them to stop shipping insecure products going forward. And so what about the role of the federal government in driving, as you put it, those market forces? Sounds like the equivalent of the five-mile-an-hour bumper and the airbag coming for software. Yeah, well, beyond that legislation that they envision, which will certainly be a heavy lift to to get across and sign into law, there's also a role for federal procurement. The strategy notes that contracting requirements for vendors that sell to the government have been an effective tool in the past for improving cybersecurity. This is something that's actually already underway, uh, stemming from that May 2021 cyber executive order. Officials are uh, drafting new federal acquisition regulation rules around software development standards. And the strategy calls for continuing to pilot new concepts for testing cybersecurity requirements and enforcing them through procurement. Yeah, that sounds like a bit of an uphill battle simply because the regulations could have costs that would trigger the type of review of big regulation. And there's already like a camel line of big regulations into the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. So this sounds like a bit of a heavy lift just from a process standpoint. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot coming down the pipeline. The strategy doesn't talk about uh, maybe the elephant in the room in this topic, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program from the Defense Department, CMMC, enforcing cyber standards, ensuring contractors are following those. That still has to get through the process. The strategy does talk about the Justice Department's Cyber Civil Fraud Initiative as kind of a key backstop for enforcing these contracting requirements if they get through the process. And there are ones that are already in place. So there is a bit of a backstop there. But you're right, it's going to take some um, lifts to to get these regulations in place. Sure. And if there's legislation, you've got a divided Congress and anything that has to do with shaping market forces sometimes doesn't sit well with Republicans as it does maybe with Democrats, perhaps. Yeah, you're already seeing a little bit of pushback from uh, the House, House Republicans, House Homeland Security Chairman Mark Green and Cybersecurity Subcommittee Chairman Andrew Garbarino released a statement basically calling the strategy a call for more, uh, quote unquote, red tape, especially when it comes to critical infrastructure. The Biden administration wants to put more regulations in place there. But clearly, these House Republicans are coming out and saying that they're not exactly a fan of more regulation. Yeah, let's talk about security of critical infrastructure. That's part of the plan, too. And tell us a little bit more about that strategy for regulation there. Yeah, essentially, it looks to set uh, minimum security requirements across the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. And this is really a shift that's already underway. The Biden administration has already put out new requirements for the pipeline and uh, rail sectors within the past year. And there are new ones coming for the water sector that will happen uh, through the EPA's sanitary review process, where they also look at cybersecurity. The strategy talks about wanting to really spread some sort of minimum level of security across sectors. They call for performance-based standards, which is certainly an industry-friendly term, but at the same time, they want more regulation. Ann Newberger is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, and she talked about the need for regulation in critical infrastructure. Information sharing and public-private partnerships are inadequate 
for the threats we face when we look at critical infrastructure. We've made major progress in executing this as a core Biden administration commitment in the first two years, and we'll continue to carry it forward with the executive branch authorities we have in place and work with Congress to develop those limited additional authorities we may still need. Yeah, and they've got that recent rail spill in Pennsylvania, kind of a trifecta. You had a chemical spill and a rail horrible accident, which contaminated air and water. So maybe it's a quinella. Everything got harmed there. And I guess they can cite that as a case in point for the need for more of this. What about the uh, regulation idea once again in Congress that's going to have some rough roads right now? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, Mark Green, the chairman of the, the Homeland Security Committee, that's the committee that any of these, a lot of these new proposed regulations will uh, have to to get through. He's really calling for more harmonization for, for agencies to use their existing authorities. He calls this new strategy and the regulatory push a push for more, quote unquote, red tape. Republicans on that committee want to see actually uh, CISA continue to be the lead for federal cybersecurity and critical infrastructure resilience. And, and that's something that the, the strategy articulates as well. But as Ann Newberger said, they're looking to work with lawmakers to essentially put in place new regulations where there aren't any in place yet um, for other sectors. And there could be some roadblocks there in the House. Now, this strategy seems to apply mostly to the various sectors of industry, with the government's role being regulation and legislation to enable what it is they want for outcomes. Would you say then that it's complementary to the executive order on cybersecurity, which applied to the government, which the Biden administration released just almost two years ago? Yeah, exactly. You know, the strategy doesn't include a heavy uh, emphasis on federal systems and networks uh, beyond talking about how that cybersecurity executive order uh, nearly two years ago really uh, included a heavy emphasis on shifting to zero trust and better software security. And, and now they want to kind of spread those ideas maybe a little bit more broadly across the board. We mentioned regulation and liability. There's also a lot of talk in the strategy about public-private partnerships, working with international partners on international standards. You could certainly see industry wanting to ensure that if there's going to be some new requirements and regulation, that they're kind of international across the board. There aren't different requirements for different sectors and uh, businesses. Sure. I can see the European Union spreading here when it comes to some of these measures. And are there any timelines or deadlines for implementing all of these ideas in that strategy? Well, there's no big deadline for, for anything quite yet. This is a 10-year strategy. That's the intent, at least. Some of these things will take time. For instance, the software liability legislation that we talked about earlier, a senior administration official, told reporters that that's a longer term project. The official said not to expect any legislation over the next year. They're going to work with industry first before going to Congress. Uh, there's an implementation plan that's still in the works to further sketch out the different roles that certainly agencies will play in carrying these ideas forward. And we should expect to see that within the next few months. What do they say about software unsafe at any runtime? Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tamman.